Ladies and gentlemen, I am in Edinburgh. Um, I'm with Sean and Johan and Duffy Connors at Jockey Murphy's Bar every day at 6.45 until the 25th of August as the tick boxes. Uh, come and see us if you want to have a little laugh. Um, but before then, I have a wonderful guest today. His name is Robert Mulholland. We talk about absolutely everything from how to start, how he started in stand-up comedy, the different circuits, and the issues we have with the scene, with the various scenes, and also a wonderful sitcom called It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So please give it up for Rob Mulholland. How are you going to Hey, and we're going. Hi, Rob Mulholland. How are we doing? I'm quite alright, thank you. Enjoying the fringe. Oh, sweet. So, what got you started in comedy? Um, I was always a bit of a class clown, right? I was that dickhead. Um, uh, <laughs> like I've, I've genuinely got school reports. Like I, I, I want to get one of them framed. Uh, it says, Rob will never make it anywhere in life by making jokes and mucking around. Oh. So I'm going to get that framed. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> basically, when I was at uni, like um, I lived next door to Angus Dunnigan, who's a comedian. He's got a show at the Fringe. Um, and he said that I was funny. I should give it a try yeah and then one night he was like look I'm doing this comedy competition tomorrow um, it's open sign up anyone can turn mm-hmm. up you just need two minutes yeah so me and him sat together and wrote two minutes and it was it was looking back obviously dog shit yeah <laughs> but uh, I went and did it the next day I just went and got on stage the next day um, and yeah loved it and then I did about maybe 10-15 gigs around then mm-hmm. when I was like 18 and I uh, really enjoyed it but I was a bit of a mess at that point I didn't really know what I wanted to do yeah. with myself and I was doing a lot of drugs so uh, I didn't really do anything with it for a while then about five years later I think it was about 23 maybe yeah about 23 somewhere around there um, I'd moved back to my hometown in, in North Yorkshire nice I was going to ask you where you're from yeah, that, that's definitely not a suburb is it <laughs> no it's really not man so I was at home in like a little town in North Yorkshire it's called Knaresborough so like a little market town uh, like it's dead pretty but full of weird though it's that sort of place um, but I, I lived ne- so it's next to Harrogate it's not as posh as Harrogate but uh, it is, uh, it's right there. So I found, uh, when I was walking home from a job in the pub, I found a flyer on the floor outside my front door for the Harrogate Comedy Festival New Comedian of the Year. Um, and I'd always like, had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to be a comedian after trying it. And then, so that was like a little sign. And I kept seeing people I'd started with when I was 18 on telly. So I was like, I should give this a go again. And then, uh, yeah, I did that. And then from there, I just uh, threw myself into it completely. and. It's been my life ever since. I've been full time for a few years now. Sweet. So yeah. who was in your who was in your class, your comedy class? I was. I've sort of. I almost like. I almost have two because my first one when I was like eighteen, like my class then was uh, Ian Smith, Tom Rosenthal, and Sean Walsh were my mates then. They've done around. They did all right. <laughs> that's what I mean. <laughs> so when I was twenty three, working in a pub, watching all those guys absolutely kill it. Like, um, so that was a bit of like, oh right, yeah, I should give that a go. Yeah. Um, so they, they were my mates back then, um, but then. 
in this sort of, like in my, my proper go at it, like the people I sort of started with were like Raul Coley, yeah. uh, Josh Pugh was doing gong shows at the same okay. time as me. Yeah, like it started off like I used to win all the gong shows and stuff at first, and then Josh Pugh just shot past oh, me. Oh, <laughs> nice. But like he's an absolute legend, Josh. He's a, he's a great comic. Um, so yeah, they were about, I was really good mates with a uh, last called Rivka Rutley, who's dead funny. Um, yeah, I can't remember who was exactly starting, mate. Like, one thing you will notice with me as we go is I've got a shit memory. That's fine. <laughs> That's all right. That's but fine. But yeah, those, those, uh, those are some good mates of mine. Like, um, yeah, there's a lot of like people I started with who are doing well now, and it's really nice to mm. see, man. So what do you think of gong shows as a whole? Gong shows? I fucking love gong yeah. shows. Like, uh, I was dead good at them, to be fair. Like, I got a really tight five minutes uh, mm. quite early on. I just did that for ages, mm. um, but yeah, I really liked them because I um, I think they're really really good for comedians. Mm. Um, I know there's a lot of comedians who complain about them, but they usually just shit at gong shows. Yeah, <laughs> but the reason I think that they're good, um, they can be reductive. There are some styles of comedy that won't work in it, certainly. But um, I think in general, it is the best training for weekend comedy. People complain when they do that, that they're not supportive and that the audiences can be rowdy and heckly, and yeah, that's true. But like, go to any major mainstream comedy club on a Friday, Saturday night, and like, they've done a load of cocaine, like, yeah. you know, the stags and hens. It's not always an easy environment, no. and you can't go straight from an open mic where everyone's wanting you to do well and it's all your mates and it's a load of comedians. You can't go from that to Friday night comedy which is how you earn your living mm -hmm. without learning how to do that you That's need true. to go through the fire and yeah. like gong shows toughen you up and like yeah. you need that in comedy you need some of the rough edges beating off you you need to lose the fear of failure yeah. and uh, gong shows are a really immediate way to do that because you can fail hard mm. and like, I have done like you know it wasn't like I won every one I did by a long stretch like I had some real grim ones like I had one at the Frog and Bucket in Preston, which doesn't exist anymore, that club. It's in Manchester now, isn't it? Yeah, there used to be Manchester and Preston. Um, and I did beat the Frog in uh, Preston when I was really early on, when I was an open spot. And uh, there was like 15 people on the bill, something like that. It was a really big uh, one. And uh, I was on last. And everyone got through the gong. So before I went on, the compare had mentioned that everyone had got through. So when I went on, I lasted 4 minutes 57 of the 5 Ooh. minutes, then got gonged, despite not anywhere near being the shittest one on the bill, mm. but, uh, so then they had to do a clap off where everyone else went on stage except me, mm. and I was the only person who had failed, yeah. stood at the back watching everyone else go. And I drove home that night, and uh, I was driving down the M62 going home, and I was like, this never happens to me again. This never happens. I change things, I get better, and this never happens again. And I, it, I feel like that night was a real catalyst for me becoming a pro comic. Like There was a, this particular building on the M62 that every time I drive past it, I just remember that moment, and I remember how far I've come since then. It's really like awesome, like landmark for me in my career. That's and like, nice. so yeah, you learn from failure. Don't don't worry about failure. Mm. Like, if you're a new comic, like failure's good. Yeah, like you learn from your. You don't learn from a good gig. No, like you're good right. gigs help you write. Bad gigs help you edit. I can't yeah. remember whose phrase that is. It's not mine, but I think that's uh, totally true. Because like, when you're on stage at a good gig, you can play with things and you yeah. can riff a bit more and like have fun. But like a bad gig will tell you what is not up to scratch. Yeah. Because like, if you're at a really bad gig, your 10 out of 10 gigs will dig you out, 10 out of 10 gags will um, dig you out of a hole. Yeah. 
but if you've got something that's like a five or a six, it's yeah. just gonna fucking flop. Yeah, so like you know, it is genuinely useful, and also just yeah, losing that fear of dying. Yeah, like you, you can only do that by dying on your ass right. over and over again. Yeah, like eventually you get to a point where you stop caring mm. and you learn how to control your emotions in that moment of it going south. Because it always happens, you never stop dying. Every yeah. now and again, one will happen. It becomes yeah. less and less frequent. Yeah. Like unless you shit. Yeah. <laughs> but like uh, you know, they're rare now, deaths. But when they start to happen, I know how to control them and start to bring them back now. Because okay. I don't get the same panic. Like yeah. when you when you f- the first time you die on your ass is a fucking transformative experience. Oh fuck yeah! The first time you, f- you you feel your mouth go dry, you get the shakes, you get the cold sweats, you, your brain goes blank, you can't think of anything. But like you get to a point where now even if uh, even if for some reason I forgot all of my material, it's fine. I know how to be on stage and I know how to be funny on stage mm. without it. But you can only get that by failure, definitely. That's right. Um, I did my first ever gong show. Oh yeah. Up this in this this Edinburgh. Oh yeah, there's a couple of people doing gong shows. Yeah, there's, year, there's there? two. There's um, Roger Swift who's doing yes. Ed Pact on. There's um, no, oh, what's his name? I can't remember, man. It's at the counting. It's at the counting house. Yeah. The counting so they're the only they're the only two. I was meant to do the counting house one, but I fell asleep. But I overslept. Yeah, yeah. And I've done the Ed Factor one twice oh, yeah. now. How did it go? Um, got well the first time. Yeah. It was going really well, but then I, you know, I gonged myself off because I was like, you know, I've forgotten what I was going to say next. So yeah, yeah, cards yeah. up, cards up. Don't worry, there's no point me doing this. Pick right. Yeah, yeah. So again, like you, your first time, I was the I was the only one to not go through. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Lasted about three minutes. That's not, all right. Not too bad. Yeah. Um, second time, got gonged off again at three at the three minute mark, but not because I had them in my, I had them in the palm of my fucking hand. Yeah. They were a rowdy crowd. It was really good. Yeah. But they didn't like one of my family members' views. Right. Okay. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen that happen quite a lot of gong shows actually. Um, someone will mention like it's usually a white kid who does it. Yeah. Like they'll they'll mention like something their racist nana says, mm. but they'll drop it and like they might well have a joke coming afterwards. Yeah. But like just the act of dropping that is a moment where people go nah fuck off. Yeah. Like you got you got to be careful in gong shows of moments like that. Yeah. Like, you can't do the sort of material that... I do a lot of material now where I will sort of push an audience away then pull them back. Yeah. So I'll go, here's a horrible thing, and then here's a load of twisted logic to yeah. bring it back. Yeah. You can't really do that in a gong show, because no. um, the horrible thing will get you gonged off. Yeah. But I, I kind of think that's a good thing, because I don't think you should be touching that stuff for the first, like, four years. No. Because I, 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 I tried to do, like, you know, like, controversial, interesting stand-up, yeah. and... You're just not good enough yet. I wasn't. And I don't think anyone is really. Like, it takes a long time to learn how to have the nuance to get through it. Yeah. So, like, I, I learned that lesson through gong shows. Yeah. I kept getting gonged off because I was trying to do these, like, you know, I was really into, like, ed- edgy comedians and stuff. So I was trying to do all that and I'd get myself gonged. Mm. And then I learned to take a step back and I started just doing, like, simpler, simpler jokes, but, like, learning the craft more. So I was mm. just doing stuff about my cat. Like, you know, it wasn't like groundbreaking, edgy stuff, but it, I learned to do the basics of stand up. I learned, I learned to walk for a run, basically, yeah. and like Gong Show's taught me that. Because, like, they will teach you what you can't do yet. Oh, yeah. Totally. I think this whole festival has taught me so much about what I can and cannot say, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. In the ve- I'm at Dropkick Murphy's. Right, yeah, yeah. And that is a fucking fantastic venue. Ooh. 
when it's a, when it's alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when it's not, you've got to really fucking work. Yeah, it's so, totally wrong. So I've essentially rewritten like ninety percent of the stuff I came up with. Good man, that's good. Like um, especially early on in your career, none of your material matters. I mean, your material doesn't really matter anyway. Like as you get on, like it's, it's replaceable. You know, it's yeah. interchangeable. So, um, you know, like turning it over is good. Like, because um, when you're a new comedian, all these stuff's new material, so yeah. none of it matters. Yeah. And just the act of rewriting and writing more will improve you as a comedian. Yeah. So, yeah. It's this is my first Edinburgh, so I was like, Yeah, man. Like, how are you finding it? It's been the best training and learning experience I could ever have asked yeah. for. It's a it's a boot camp. Yeah. Like, especially for new comics, it's awesome. Like when yeah. I first came, yeah, it just transformed me. I would say I think you get a year better in a month. Yeah. Like you know, because there's no stand up on like you know, more than like anything else I know. Like you can't replace experience. No. You, you just have to get the hours on stage, mm. and like that's the only way to learn it and the only way to get good. Mm. So at Edinburgh, the amount of stage time you can get in a month, yeah. the amount of gigs you can do in different environments to different audiences. Like you'll turn up in one room and it'll be a load of old people, and there's a load of like Germans who don't speak English, and you've got to find out a way to make them laugh. Then you'll go to another venue and the mic doesn't work properly, so you've got to leave it in the stand. And like that's a different challenge. You've got to learn how to do that. And then you know, like one of them, there won't be a mic, so you just got to shout. And like mm. it, it, there's all these like different environments. Every room has a completely different environment. And like all those little challenges are really good for you. Like uh, they might be frustrating at the time, like you know if the sound's cutting in and out, but you've got to find a way to deal with yeah. that. And when you've done that hundreds of times, eventually you get to a point where you walk into a new room that you've not been in before, and you can instinctively learn how to read it and play it a bit better. Mm. Just and you can only do that through experience. Totally, that's true. Um, so you started up not you started up north, right? Yeah, my initial well, my initial flurry of like ten gigs when I was eighteen was in London. Yeah, ah, uh, right. so I, I went to uni in London. I went to Goldsmiths. Um, Woo! I, know, <laughs> I scraped in through clearing, <laughs> and then I dropped out twice. Oh, so, okay. So yeah, like uh, basically, I wanted to move to London and uh, have a good time, and I did. <laughs> I did yeah. not. I did not do well in a degree. But yeah, so that was where I initially started. But then I, uh, yeah, I my my career proper started in the north. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I think it's a better place to start. Like, I've got a unique experience of starting comedy in both yeah. environments, and like um, it's a lot easier doing it in the north. I was gonna say, yeah, because like, you can get stage time a lot quicker. Like you can get better stage time. Like there's a lot of really shit open mics in London. Oh, like there's a lot of places where I wouldn't say it's not worth it to go because I think when you're starting it's worth it to get any stage time count anywhere at any yeah. point. But there is a bit of the London open mic scene could be a real trap and you can just get sort of stuck on that and like that circuit and oh, it's like a separate I, circuit. I cannot agree with you more. Yeah, because no one's going to the London open mics looking for people for pro gigs. Right. Because. Like, because to be honest, the the average standard at a London open mic is dog shit. Like you know, like most people are really crap. So you know, it takes a while to break out of that. But in the north, what happens is that there's um, there's more and more open mics opening up now, especially in Manchester. You can get on stage any night yeah. of the week, and there's more of them like dotted around. But because it's like a slightly smaller scene, I guess there's probably like less comedians. Yeah. But the average standard is a bit higher. Like so, you get pushed a bit more. Yeah. Also, you can get more stage time on pro bills quicker. Mm. You can actually get decent spots on good bills with mm. good audiences and experience that. 
and you get to see where the standard is pretty quickly mm. like um you know rather than just being because there is a huge leap even even in the north like there's a huge leap between being the best one at the open mic and being the worst one on a pro bill yeah like, that leap is hard i think that was the hardest moment of my career so far to be fair that that transition because yeah you go from being billy big balls and like crushing it at the open mm. mic because you know everyone's like not doesn't really know what they're doing you know eventually i got to a point where i would be like the one who was killing at the open mic i'm like yeah i'm amazing and then i go work with some actual <laughs> comedians and i'd be like oh i'm really shit <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's an important lesson but like that transition's huge it's like, a bit like i thought i'm from what I'm, I'm still on the open mic circuit like yeah but what I'd imagine it's like is going from primary school to secondary school. Yes, it is very much like that. Yeah, 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 totally. From uh, yeah, big fish in a small pond yeah. to yeah, small fish in the big pond. It is totally like that. Um, but you get those challenges all the way through your career. Of course. And, like, those never stop. Like at the moment, like I'm breaking into like headlining. So in order to do that, I've got to be as good or better than some of the best in the country. Mm. So it's a huge step. Like there's all these huge steps because that's the thing. Like in order to get paid work, people often think that you just do well at some gigs and then it'll naturally lead to that. No. You've got to look at it from a promoter's point of view. You, if you're a new comedian with no experience, you've got to be better than the person with the experience that they could get for the same fee because mm. otherwise why would they book you over there sure. so like if you want to if you want to get into those paid spots you've really got to fucking earn it like uh, no one's going to give you anything because there are loads of great comedians yeah loads of them so yeah it's all just about hitting those standards and just constantly trying to improve yourself and always going for the kill and like not accepting a three out of five gig mm. like if I have a three out of five gig like don't get me wrong I'm not going home suicidal but I'm going home working out where I went wrong yeah and like that's not good enough I want I, I want I want people crying with laughter yeah. every time I want to smash it and like that's the, that's the way to progress yeah have you seen the show Crashing by any chance yes I have I really enjoyed Crashing and there's a scene where he's in um, where he's where Pete's auditioning for the cellar and yes. when what's her name who actually run who actually mm. runs the cellar yeah she's he, talking about a good and bad yeah, bomb he said um, he said um, she said a weak kill no a strong bomb yeah. is better than a weak kill it often is it depends on the promoter like there's some promoters who are very happy for you to have a weak kill mm. <laughs> don't get me wrong yeah but I think if you want to be a comedian because you love comedy and you want to do something interesting and you want to create a long term career where you're actually sustainable and you're truly yourself then that's totally true like that comes kind of later I think like that, that's in the process of like finding your voice and yeah. that sort of thing and that's what I'm doing now but yeah early on it's just about getting laughs but also there is definitely for like new comedians I see a lot of people like accepting a lot of like hack lines in their set because mm. they get laughs but if a promoter sees you getting a load of laughs with a load of lines that they've seen before they're not going to book you yeah there's plenty of people who've been going 40 years who can pump out hack bullshit yeah right there's loads of them right <laughs> every every I, I thought we were going to name some people no of course not but yeah that's it so like being interesting is a really important part of it that a lot of people miss um, mm. like yeah like you got to be interesting and funny yeah right like every open mic comedian has a joke about their penis or Tinder or a Tinder date. Yeah, and like I, I right now in my show have a joke about Tinder and yeah. a joke about my dick, but I guarantee you won't have seen them before. Nice. Like they're completely unique angles. 
And like, if you can do that, I don't, I don't believe in hack topics. There's no. hack angles, you know. Yeah. There's hack approaches to things. And yeah, like you know, you are right. I've seen the same joke dozens and dozens yeah. of times on like Tinder. That one with like, you wouldn't do that in real life, swiping people in the pub. Yeah. Like, if I see that one more fucking time, honestly. But uh, <laughs> like, yeah, there's loads of those knocking around, and they're just not good enough. But I get why people do them. They're a comfort blanket. Yeah. Because they do get a laugh. That's why they become hack. Yeah. Because they work. But it's not good enough, and don't accept that from yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think anyone should. Don't accept uh, just just weak pullback and reveals, and just there's just a lot of like weak ways to do comedy. Yeah, it's sort of work. But like the things that will make you kill are having a unique perspective and having great jokes. Yeah, and, like jokes that are unique that no one sees coming. And uh, the more surprising and interesting you can be, the better you'll do. Mm. You know, you can get away with it so far, but I do think being hack has a limit. Yeah, that's right. And uh, thankfully, because fuck hacks. <laughs> <laughs> There's just too many. There are. To be honest, I've I've realised recently, like the last week or so, that I did have a couple of hat lines in my yeah, set. Yeah, yeah, you will do, man. When and, I start, everyone yeah. does. Like, and don't get me wrong, like I have done. Everyone mm. has done. Like, you know, I'm not holier than thou on these. <laughs> so I'll move this. That's right. Okay, let's be right. But yeah. um you know, we all do, especially when we start. Cause yeah. Also, like sometimes you don't know what's hack. You know, yeah. Because you haven't seen loads and loads of comedy when you start. Like, so that takes a while. But yeah, it's about once you identify them, having the balls to say, right, I'm not going to get that easy laugh. Yeah. You know, like I'm going to lose that easy laugh because whilst your sets might suffer for a little bit, and you know, you might not have that like easy get out. It's going to toughen you in the long run. Yeah. And, like, because you'll have to find something interesting to fill that gap where mm. that laugh was and eventually that will lead to you be being better at comedy yeah like that that's the long-term aim like when you're first starting a lot of people are worried about each set and how they do at each set it's not really the way to look at it you've got to look long term at your progression and mm. are you getting better that's it doesn't right. matter where you are now it's where you're going like i started with people who were way more talented than me like who had a, who just had a natural brilliance but i worked harder and I worked harder than everyone. Uh, like I was out gigging five nights a week, every week, as well as having a full-time job. Mm. And I was writing hard, and I was focused, and like everything was about getting better. And that was that's all my aim has ever been. Early on, I realised that by listening to comedians on podcasts and stuff, yeah. like the ones who've done well, like the people I admired, they always said the only thing to focus on is being funnier than you were yesterday. Yeah. And that's it. You just day by day gradually get better, and like before you know it, it's eight years down the line and you've made a job of it. That's know? it. That's or you know it's eight years down the line you're still in an open spot. They <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well that happens and oh, that man. is that is a reality for some. I, I know people who've been in an open spot for fifteen years. It's like I don't get it. But if they're, if they're enjoying themselves, fair play. Yeah. But it's not fucking happening, is it? After no. that point. <laughs> no, it's not. And. Fair play if you enjoy yourself. Yeah, that's yeah. Great. Like, there's nothing wrong with that, but like, uh, yeah, there's still, like, there's a lot of people like on the, especially on the open mic circuit, yeah. who don't really have any self awareness. Yeah. <laughs> so they, so they have no idea that they're shit. Is the mm-hmm. thing like they, they think they're genuinely good, but you know they don't, they don't affect me. So you know more power to them. Exactly, as long as they're like the bomb isn't so bad that yeah, it well, affects like, everyone else. Following a bomb is great though. Yeah. Like, following a bomb makes you look like a fucking hero. Yeah. Like, if you've got if, if you're half decent, following someone absolutely tanking is great. Like I, yeah. I really like. I used to really like it. It was, it was bad. Like when I was doing like gong shows and stuff, if the person before me 
tanked, I was like, brilliant. It sets you a low bar. Yeah. If you're just vaguely competent after that, you look like a fucking hero. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, what's your writing process like? Uh, I think writing process is a very grandiose term for what I do. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, with me, uh, it involves me smoking a lot of weed, um, and then I, I just just when I have I have like vague ideas, and it'll be like uh, an idea for a joke or a premise. And I make a quick note of that, uh, usually in my phone or in my notebook. Mm. And then I take those to open mics and I go to little gigs and I just talk. Like, I just talk them out. Um, like I'll usually have like two or three punchlines and a bullet mm. point for a bit. And that will be five minutes of me talking. And like, I just talk around things. And I, so like, I'll get that initial bit out, record it, listen back to it. And then uh, what I do is I sort of expand and contract bits mm. until they're solid until I can't do it anymore mm. so I will add and add and add as much stuff as I can like try and think of as many different angles and then the ones that don't work get lopped off and yeah. then I add more and then I lop a few off that don't work and I want to get to a point where it's just rolling with laughter so it's like punchline 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 after a while so yeah it's just expansion and contraction and it depends on the bit sometimes it comes out quick sometimes mm. that takes ages but I do it on stage mostly because I'm funnier on stage okay, like, right. like um, all the adrenaline and everything all the endorphins I don't know what it is sometimes I surprise myself with lines that I would mm. never think of off stage I just think it's the best place to do it so when I first started I would write everything out longhand mm. but it meant that I was really stilted not natural because you write differently to how you speak yeah. like I'm, I'm way more verbose like written down like I write like Oscar Wilde yeah you know yeah. but I sound like Sean Bean so like <laughs> it's not, it's not a good mix, you know, it doesn't match up. So I found just writing the bullet points, keeping it loose and trying to talk naturally mm. made it a lot better for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's brilliant, man. That's a really good idea. That's such a really good idea. Because I'm, I'm still in this, I'm kind of gradually moving away from longhand mm. at the moment and moving into just bullet points. Sure, yeah, yeah. But even with longhand, I won't, like, have it, like, I won't say it just like that. Yeah, totally, man. you got to leave yourself some room to breathe in it. And like that's the thing I do more and more as I get on now. Like now I'm really into like keeping my bits loose and alive. Like mm -hmm. uh, I was watching Tom Stayed once actually. I watched him do two sets in a night. Like um, he was doubling up, and I, I drove him between the gigs. And uh, watching the way his sets were, he did the same bits, but his sets were totally different. In the he has the punchlines, and it's the same concept, it's the same premise. But he, he's loose and alive in it, and he's mm. saying it every time. He's not reciting it, he's saying it. So the way he gets through the bit is totally different each time, so it's organic. So he's alive in the room, so he has a genuine connection with the audience. So like that was a real eye-opener, and I really try and do that now more and more. Like there isn't, If you see, if I record my bit four nights in a row, the wording's going to be different every yeah. time, and I like that, because... There were bits early on, that especially I would go dead behind the eyes a bit because mm. it was mm. just so honed and so polished. And yeah. like, so I like leaving myself a bit of room to play in things and have a little bit of room to improvise as well, just to keep me alive and mm. make sure I'm not reciting. Yeah, that's right. Because otherwise, it's just you're re you're reading off a you're reading a script. Exactly, and that's that's not what stand up is. It's a live art form. It's me and you. you yeah. Know, like, yeah. And the audience can tell when you're trying to remember what you're trying to say. Oh yeah, totally. Like if you look, if you look too rehearsed, if you like, it, it, you can totally feel like the difference. If you like looking at notes and stuff, like it just sort of takes people out of it. Mm. And, like it's a, not a genuine conversation with yeah. them. Like if it, but if the note is part of your bit. Yeah, yeah, totally. There's, yeah. there's ways to do that, definitely. But um, yeah, you can definitely feel people 
pulling out. Um, yeah. It's just, it's just about making that connection with an audience and just sort of if you if you look like if it looks like it's too much effort then mm. that can sometimes be a bit of a disconnect. Mm. But obviously some people that's their shtick. Yeah, that's right. Um, so what do you think of the comedy scene up north compared to down south? Oh, like here we go. Here's where we get in trouble, right? Uh, so uh, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> right. Um, I think in general, in the north, it seems slightly less exploitative of new yeah. acts. Oh yes. Um, like, don't get me wrong. There's, you know, there's, there's. Like, I'm not saying anywhere's perfect, um, but like, the, you know, we don't have bringer gigs where you've got to bring a mate in order to get on stage. <laughs> we, yeah. don't have, we don't have pay to play. Um, I would never, no, ever. Like, no, you never should. Uh, like those people are just ripping comedians off. They're bullshit artists, mm. like absolute scumbags. Um, so we don't have those sort of things. We do have more and more open mics popping up, and I'm sure like bringers are going to become a thing soon. But mm. I think there'll be such a kick off with them, hopefully. Um, I think you know from what I've seen. I don't know the London open mic scene that well anymore. I feel like the the standard is slightly higher in the north. Mm. Um, I think there's like loads and like um, like it's a smaller scene in the north. Like in London, you get like you know loads of big names yeah. and stuff. It's a way easier place to make a living in the north. Like I live in Brighton now. I like I've moved down there. I'm moving back to Manchester though. Because oh. just for the travel, like there's so many more cities within easy yeah. reach in Manchester. Fees are higher in the north for comedians, and your costs are way lower. Like it just makes sense to be honest. It just it? makes sense. There's loads of great gigs up there. Um, I really love the Manchester scene. There's mm. some really fucking amazing clubs, and like there's a since like uh, Hot Water have like revolutionised the game. Like they've changed the game. Yeah. Like, you know, like they put Paul Smith into a stadium off the back of. Facebook videos. The game has changed, so I feel like there's less and less reason for northern comedians to come to London now. Yeah. Because we can just make our own shit. We're like, trying to come up to you guys now. This is it, man. Everyone's trying to come up to Liverpool and Manchester and get involved in that shit. And like, it's it's cool, man. But it's because like the comedy industry has ignored us for ages. Yeah. Right? Like at this festival, like uh, this, this isn't like a brag thing. Like people think if you talk to a TV producer, it's exciting. It's exciting. And they've yeah. clearly never met a TV producer. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Yeah. So like, I, I went. I, I, uh, I was having a coffee in uh, City Cafe with like some TV producers, and they were talking. This year, is it? This year, and um, we were talking about uh, like they were like, oh yeah, it's weird. Like we don't see a lot of acts like from the north. And I was like, yeah, here's why. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, firstly, you don't come up to the north ever. Yeah. Even though like the BBC and Channel Four are up there. I was gonna say that's fucking weird, isn't it? It's really weird. Then if we do come to London, we get ignored because they don't know who we are. Yeah. Then I was like, right, now you're at Edinburgh, who have you been to see? And they just reeled off a list of acts they could have seen any night of the week in London. Mm -hmm. I was like, right, what more do you want from us? We've all come to this arts festival where you are. Yeah. We're here. What more can we do? It's true. You're not coming to see us. And there's a wealth of amazing talent in the north that it gets overlooked. And but like less and less now because like we can make our own shit. Yeah. You know like we've got uh and also like there are like little uh, chinks of light like little things happening that are great like um Tez Ilias what he's done with the Tez O'Clock show is awesome. Huh. Like, I love Tez he's a great guy really good co uh, comic and like using his big break he really put his foot down that he wanted working class northern comedians yeah. on it and yeah he's got uh, Adam Rowe and Sophie Willen and Phil Ellis on it uh, Kay Kurtz doing it he's not northern but he's a good lad I'll let him off <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like he's got people like that onto his show 
and uh, so you know there are actually working class northern comedians on telly and surprise surprise it's been a big hit yes people want to see themselves represented funny that people yeah, actually strange, isn't it? people actually want to see representations of themselves yeah on TV I know and it's actually proper diversity done well there's no box ticking it's just that there are people of different ethnicities yeah. and from different class backgrounds because that's how Britain is that's it you know like that's how like my groups of friends look Mm. you know like that's that's normal to people of our generation I think like um, so yeah like there are you know hopefully TV will catch up but also who gives a fuck it's a dying industry yeah not funny but the internet's where it's at now isn't it this is it man like no one under 30 watches telly no one gives a shit Uh, it's all on YouTube exactly because why would you watch the censored version on TV where they've knocked the rough edges off and some TV producers had their input and like told the comedian what to do when you can go on the internet and watch the raw unfiltered version that's actually funny (laughs) and hasn't been fucked with so yeah I ask a lot of people like what comedy they watch and stuff because it's my business to know and uh, yeah, everyone under 30 was saying we don't watch any telly, uh, we don't watch panel shows, we don't watch Live at the Apollo. No. They watch their favourite comedians on YouTube. And the people who are doing well, Mo the Comedian, yeah. Guz Khan, yeah. Kurt's Killing It. Yeah. Like, you know, like these are the guys doing really, really well because they're making stuff directly and putting it right out to people. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like all the guys at the Quotes Full podcast, all those guys, you know, that that's proper representation. It's proper diversity. It's, true. it's not just some middle class twat trying to tick a box. That's right. Because usually, what happens with TV diversity is they'll get people of um, a different colour or a different uh, like gender. gender or sexuality, but they've all been to the same fucking private school. Yeah. And like, I think it's kind of insulting to suggest that, like, say, like. Uh, a young black kid from Liverpool, like who's grown up in Croxteth in poverty, will relate more to like a black person who's been to Eton than they would a white guy from down the road. To That's them. true. Yeah. You know, like I think that there are other things at play. It's not just you know the surface things. Like it's actual representation. Yeah, but they can't see that though, can they? No, because they're they're all public school kids. Yeah. Right? Like in the the TV industry is dominated by the upper middle class. Oh. Dominated. So and there's a lot of really well-meaning people. There's a lot of like nice people who are trying, but they just don't understand because they don't actually listen. Exactly. So yeah. So and that is often more detrimental mm. than just putting a bunch of white people on there. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you know, it's good that people are thinking about it, but like there's ways and means of doing it. That's right. You know, and not just allowing one person of a different gender or ethnicity to be on all the shows at one exactly, time exactly yeah that is a thing where they get like oh we found one <laughs> we'll put this one person on all yeah. the shows you know like because like the comedy scene like this is a thing like um, people complain about diversity in comedy I would challenge anyone to find a more diverse industry yeah like uh, you know amongst comedians I know there is every race and gender and sexuality yeah. like everyone is there it just needs to be represented more, yeah. like you know, and like with the with like uh, women in comedy, we're getting more and more women into comedy. That's awesome. Like we can't have a full gender balance yet. Like people right. want there to be a complete equal gender balance, and that's a, that's a great way to aim. But what we need is more and more female comedians starting comedy because there just right. aren't enough there. There aren't enough uh, great female comedians yeah. to fill all those roles. Like there's loads of brilliant female comedians. But we don't have enough yet. Like there's mm. still like from running an open mic, I can tell you it's about ten to one male to mm. female yeah. people starting comedy. We're seeing more and more women. But like I keep saying this on everything I'm on, and I mean it. Like if you're 
you know, anyone who's listening to this who is a young woman or like old woman, any woman who's listening to this who's thinking about doing comedy, please start. We need mm. more of you. Yeah. Because that that's if you're if you're a man thinking about comedy, fuck off. There's <laughs> <laughs> too many. There's too many. Bring up the drawbridge. <laughs> uh, I can understand. I yeah, I get what you're saying, and I completely yeah, I completely agree with you. Mm. But I can also see why some women don't want to get into comedy because because it's such a male dominated yeah, industry totally. yeah, yeah. and look at where a lot of the open mics are when you're starting out yeah, yeah. dodgy pubs totally. late at night not what, what I would say though is like the people who are like comedians in their soul like, I think being a comedian is a personality type and I don't think you find out until after doing comedy oh, for a good while yes it's, yeah. just, it's, it's in your soul and you know the people who make it aren't going to let anything like that be a barrier to them. No. Like you, you need that crazy determination, and like you know, I, I know it's, I know that it's harder for women. I'm not trying to diminish their experience in any way at all, but people have found a way. And yeah. You can find a way, and if you have that determination, uh, like generally the scene is really, really supportive. Yeah. You know, like there are cunts, and there are like there are they do exist, but generally the scene is really supportive, and it is better for women now, and we are getting better. Yeah. And the way to make it better and safer is to have more women here and more women talking, yeah. and more women represented. You know, like I'm I'm banging on on behalf of women here. And that's that fine. Just two. It's fine. Just two males. Two males. Out. Exactly. Telling yeah. women where they're going wrong. <laughs> But not like uh, yeah, I I I I would encourage them to try anyway. Give it a go, and like uh, if you're good, you will work as well as a female comedian. Yeah. Because we we all if most not, people in comedy want to see more representation. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Like I've seen a lot more promoters on Facebook and stuff saying we want a female com- we want female yeah, comedians. Yeah, and now. it's good. Uh, like you know, some people have complained about positive discrimination like that, and I think it's only a good thing because uh, we, if we just leave it as it is, it's not going to change. Yeah. And like putting more women on bills is great. Like what we can't do is um, like unfortunately on like weekend bills on big pro nights. Mm-hmm. Like that's when it's really hard to get like an equal representation because you might you, you you can there are only so many headline level female comedians that's and right. there are only there, there are way more clubs than there are women who can do those spots currently. And you know we can give them more spots like open spots on those bills. Mm-hmm. But if you're a club promoter, you can't lower the standard of your bill yeah. in order to accommodate more diversity sometimes because you, you need people to come back. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, it, that, that's why we need more women starting because like, more women starting will mean more women make the standard and then when more women make the standard, we can have more equality and that that's what we need. Mm. And, you know, uh, hopefully we find more ways to support people to do that and I'm sure there's loads of challenges I'm well unaware of. But fingers crossed, loads more women start, and that we are getting more and more women in comedy. It mm. is happening, and uh, that 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 can only be a good thing. Like, I think okay. more diversity of voices is only a good thing in comedy. Um, so, you know, come on, ladies, pull your fucking finger out. Pull your fucking finger out. <laughs> so, who do you reckon are your influences? Uh, like, no, I'm not allowed to say it anymore. But Louis C.K. was. Oh, you're allowed to say it. Yeah, Come on. It was. It was a huge influence on me. Um, not in his comedy, just in my behaviour in green rooms. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> no, like, um, yeah, C.K. was a huge influence. Like, unfortunately, when I first started, when I was 18, Bill Hicks was my biggest influence. Right now, Bill Hicks, like, uh, like loving my hate and whatever. He's a terrible influence on a new comedian. Yes. Like, so I went, oh, oh like, yeah, I'm going to tell some truths. And it just wasn't funny. Oh. Just awful. <laughs> so cringeworthy. 
but yeah CK was a huge influence um, like Chris Rock's a massive influence yeah. on me um, like I'm really big into American comedy yeah like Billy Connolly was my hero growing up and like I wish I had like cooler influences when I first started but Peter Kay was huge like you know when I was at school Peter Kay was the shit like um, mm. like I loved him um, but then like as I got into comedy more and more like my big influences nowadays are you know, CK, Bill Burr, uh, Brian Reagan, oh, yeah. uh, Patrice O'Neill, um, just the, the, like this, that sort of wave of mm. amazing American comics I absolutely love. And yeah, um, Chappelle, Chris yeah. Rock, Pryor. Like, um, I grew up like a big like, uh, transformative experience for me when I was a teenager. And actually, interestingly, quite a lot of comedians in my generation have this, I think was seeing Def Jam comedy because mm-hmm. um, yeah. they used to show it like late night on Channel 4 and I, stumbled, I used to have it on DVD amazing man yeah. yeah and like I stumbled across it like just randomly late at night when I was just flicking through channels when I was uh, like too young to be watching it yeah of course but then like when you see that energy I had never seen anything like that where like rooms would explode yeah. and you'd see people dying their ass as well they yeah. would edit it out if you died in your ass on Def Jam that's going out on television yeah but that environment was so exciting and just seeing like just these um, like, like watching Bernie Mac do the yeah. I, I ain't scared of you motherfuckers I ain't scared of you motherfuckers <laughs> or, and then just dancing yeah. it's just like I've never seen anything like it it blew my mind or the like, Chris Tucker bit where he's talking about yeah. Michael Jackson and the car, yeah. um, Tio in the car oh mate it's unreal like and there's just so many bits like that though it was just like you just I became obsessed with it it yeah. was just like I'd never seen anything like it and it blew my mind and uh, yeah like some of it I just did not get and I still know some of it's dog shit yeah it's true but like the stuff that was amazing on it was an explosion and that sort of energy and chaos I've always been attracted to that chaos that's what I loved about uh, Billy Connolly yeah you know he just had that mischief about him and Mm. I really admire that in comedians and uh, yeah like so yeah Def Jam was genuinely a big influence on me like uh, weirdly even Mm. though I am white as fuck that's fine <laughs> well it's, it's comedy isn't it that's it's a, it's a, it it's is a universal language totally. no matter what you are no matter where you're from yep funny is funny funny is funny I totally agree with you man I think it, it translates and you find that out at this festival there's people from all around the world all laughing at the same thing I know like, I think humour is universal totally yeah this so why do you th- do you think that the Edinburgh Festival is going in a, in, in a good direction or no. a no, I think, like, to be honest with you, it feels like it's falling apart at the seams a bit. Yeah. Like, this year has been a lot quieter than previous years out on the yeah. streets. There's just fewer people walking around, uh, which means, like, everyone I speak to, their show numbers are down. Like, I have this year the best venue at the best time in Where the best at? location. Where so you at? Opium on Cowgate nice. at 7.20. So it's a, it's a beautiful room. It's right where everyone is, right in the centre. It's a perfect peak time and I've got loads of flyers out mm. I've, got, I've got six people flyering for me in previous years I would have been turning people away every day off that no matter what my reputation was no matter who I was just yeah. off that level of marketing in that venue 100% I'd be turning people away every day mm. and like most days I'm half full um, you know I'm filling it on weekends and like don't get me wrong the shows are great and like yeah. that's still good numbers it's yeah. a big room but it's not what it used to be. Yeah. And everyone I speak to is having the same experience. Numbers are down for everyone. Mm. So drastic changes need to be made. Like it's the new rent laws that have come in. That oh, great. yeah. It's great that they've protected people who live here. That's great. But the unintended consequences is it spiked prices so high yeah. that it's priced a lot of people out of it. 
And I saw an article the other day where they were talking about fears that the Edinburgh Fringe could become a, a playground. They're going for the middle class, yes! I love that yeah. article! Yeah, but like, could become. It's been, it is, it's been yeah. for ages. It's always, it's always been. It's always been a playground for the middle class. Because, like, the game is rigged. The game is rigged at Edinburgh. Like, there's uh, a lot of money sloshing about. None of it's co- going to performers. It's not. coming from them. So people with rich parents, people who can afford to spend thousands of thousands on big posters and PR and marketing, you know, they've got a massive advantage. But yeah, there are a few people out on the streets that have really been priced out, because you could have a holiday in Barbados for the same cost as a week here. Yeah. Like, why the fuck would you choose Scotland? It's, it's metal. True. So something needs to be done about that. The costs need to come down. There needs to be a way of doing that to make it less expensive, because people will stop coming. And uh, like after my first week, I was really seriously thinking about whether I would come back to Edinburgh again. Yeah. Like you know, I've really enjoyed my weekend. I've had a good time. So you know, I'm I'm back on the fence on that. Yeah. But, I don't know. It's worrying, man. Like it just it doesn't feel the same, and it's mm. sad. Like because uh, I've been coming for like five years now. Really. And even in that time, I've just noticed the numbers just dropping i also think what hasn't helped this is my first one so yeah, this yeah. is just my first ever because i'm yeah. only a year and a bit into comedy myself yeah. so like this is my first experience mm. what i've noticed is that the big comedians mm. will play edinburgh as part of their tour yeah i think that's fucking bullshit like yeah um, yeah like you know, like it's I, not meant to be for them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if they're taking two thousand people off the streets to go watch them in a massive theatre, yeah, then you know, there's two thousand people who could be going to like little shows and like new shows and stuff like that. And I think just just play Edinburgh a different time. Like, yeah, they could sell out Edinburgh at any point they wanted. I don't know, man. Like you know, but saying that, I've seen Bill Burr at the Edinburgh Festival. It's the greatest show I've ever seen. But um, you know, but that was at the, in the Pleasant Grand. It was yeah. actually in the ple- part of the festival it wasn't just a big theater yeah um you know like everyone can do what they want obviously but yeah. i just think it's not really the point of the fringe no. is to come here as a huge star already mm. Mm. to be fair i am i did see stuart goldsmith do his work in progress this mm. year phenomenal yeah and i'm gonna see um eddie izzard right yeah. on the last co- um, in a couple of days yeah. do his work in progress right yeah yeah so that's a different thing that's that's working something out and I, I don't know if like I love Stu but I don't know if he's quite on that level with Eddie <laughs> <laughs> like, I love Stu though but uh, but yeah like uh, Eddie is out definitely uh, with a work in progress I think it's kind of a different thing mm. if you come in with your big finished tour show then you know get out of town yeah I'm a bit, yeah so I think they're taking away a lot from, yeah, I don't think they're uh, the main problem, but I don't no. really think they contribute. Of course not, they're not. Yeah, yeah. But to be fair, it's a venue, and if they've been given a venue for a few days... Yeah, yeah I mean, like, you know, I can't really, you know, I can't really judge anyone for it, I don't no. know the circumstances, but instinctively it feels a bit gross to me. It does, and especially when the fr- a fringe festival is meant to be for... The yeah, exactly, like, you know, it's, it's meant to be about discovery a bit, I think, mm. this festival, but... Who knows, man? Like, you know, I'm not in a position to kick anyone out of the no, festival. It's open access. Everyone's welcome. True but, that. Um, but at the same time, I, I would instinctively think, like, go on, just I'll be here for now. Yeah. Go on, give us a chance. Yeah, I think that's why it's good that so many other festivals have opened up in different places. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of comedy festivals about now, and like that's a decent thing. It means you can sort of tour a little bit with those. So yeah, like they they vary in quality wildly. Yeah, yeah. Wildly, you know, like you've got like ones like Brighton and Leicester that are great comedy festivals that are set up and established. And then uh, Hastings is meant to be really good. I've not done it yet, mm-hmm. but um, you know, the, and the, like loads of little towns and cities have them, and like that is good. And 
you know, I'm I'm in the business of comedy. More comedy is always good for me. Yeah. You know, like the more that are set up, the better. Because hopefully they'll be all right. But I have played a few comedy festivals. So I've been like, why the fuck am I here? Yeah. <laughs> so what's been your best gig and your worst gig? You don't have to mention the names. Nah, no, fucking well, I don't give a shit. Good. <laughs> I love that. That's like, amazing. So I think like my my best gig ever. It might well be like right the day before this fringe. Right, I um, sold out my hometown theatre for the nice first one. time in Nashville. Fucking ace, mate. So like um, it was it was incredible, man. Like just loads of friends and family turned out, and it was just like an amazing night. And uh, yeah, the support was fucking incredible, man. It blew my mind. And then afterwards, we had an after party in the pub I used to work in with like all the old staff that I used to work with, and all my mates turned up, and it was just a fucking beautiful experience. Mm-hmm. And I had Simon Lomas opening up for me. He was an absolute killer. Oh, nice. So it was sick, man. Like so, that was like really beautiful. Like worst gig, like fucking hell. It's it's hard to pick one. Um, <laughs> like you know, I've got a list of about fifty. I could tell you easily off the top of my head. I think. Mm-hmm. Possibly the worst ever was um, at Preston Guildhall, which is now shut down. It's a big like um, shopping centre with like a theatre bit. It was really weird, but in there, like the the Frog and Bucket used to run a roadshow there after the Frog and Bucket Preston uh, closed down. Shout out to the Frog and Bucket. They've always been dead cool with me. I'm yeah. like a frog, but like this gig, fuck me. It wasn't like the I just I just fucking died so hard. Right, mm. so I was on in the middle. Ray Bradshaw was comparing. Who was opening? I can't remember who was opening. Ray Bradshaw's comparing. I love Ray. Great guy. Really funny comic. Like, the gig's fine. I go out and I just got back from my first Edinburgh. So I was full of confidence. Oh. And like, I was full of beans. And it was literally my first gig back. Like, first time going back to a weekend club. And I did a really dark joke that I'd been oh. flying at Edinburgh. But I did it really early. And they just hated it. And they hated me for it. And they just switched off as an audience. That's one they just went, no. <laughs> oh, <laughs> mate. So it just turned into silence. Like, it got to the point where, like, I, this was like, I did that like two minutes in and I was doing 20. <laughs> and, like, um, yeah, like, just 18 minutes of silence. Like, whilst I'm still going through stuff, uh, it got to the point where people wouldn't look at me. They would stop making eye contact. Oh. Uh, they were on round tables and they all just started turning to each other and having their own conversations. Oh, mate. And uh, it was so brutal. And like, I walked off and like Ray started laughing at me rightly. <laughs> and then, um, but I, would, I was there and I was just like, oh, fucking hell, shit. What fucking shit crowd? They're awful. Fucking dog shit. Oh, of course it's a crowd, isn't it? It's always the crowd. Well, yeah, this is it. I was, a bit like, I was a bit pissed off and I was like, oh, fucking hell. And then Tom Rigglesworth went on to close and just smashed it. Just absolutely knocked it out of the park. Because he's a fucking incredible comedian, Rigglesworth. Uh, but yeah, he roofed it. Like, they loved him. Like, near standing ovation. Mm. And I was watching it from the side, and that was a real fucking lesson. Mm. So I was like, yeah, that wasn't the crowd. No. <laughs> <laughs> it was me. I fucked up. I dropped the ball. So I learned a lot from it, like, as you always do. But. Uh, yeah, that one in particular sticks out as being a real fucking. But you know, I've had those sort of gigs a lot of times in yeah. a lot of different places. That's like you know, you have gigs where you turn up and there's fucking three people there and they still want you to go on in order for you to get paid. Yeah, that's but yeah, it's got to the point now where like if you want to stare at me, I'll fucking take your money for you to stare at me. I don't give yeah. a shit. Like, yeah. You, I will happily stand there. Like you know, I've I've had I've had gigs where I've told the audience I hope that their family are on fire when they're 
I've had, I've had all sorts, man. Like, um, but yeah, you, you get used to it, man. It's you know nothing bad happens. No. Like, all that happens is you feel a bit embarrassed, but then you walk out the door and it's like it's gone. Yeah. Like, I just shake it off now. It's it's over, and I just start laughing at it because like, I know eventually I will laugh at it. Yeah. So I might as well start now. That's it. Yeah. So what lesson did you think you learned from that gig? From that think? death. Uh, don't do a pedo gag in the first two minutes. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, don't be so cocky. Learn to connect with the audience and build it up. And uh, self-examination was a big thing. You just got to look inwards. And like, rather yeah. than uh, any time there's a problem in your career, like even though things might come from outside and it might be an external thing that's causing you the problem, yeah. there is always something you can do to make it a bit better. You might not be able to totally solve it, but I think always looking inwards rather mm. than outwards for the sort of problems will get you really far. That's like, right. Always examine yourself for what you're doing wrong. Alright. Yeah. So, it's always sunny. Yes. Alright, so, it is, it's one of a kind, I think. Yeah, it is. I think it's really unique, which is why I latched onto it really early. I've actually been watching it since the start. Like, I don't know how I found out about it. I think someone was like, oh, man, mm. you got to see this shit. Because, like, it started ballsy, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, had the, uh, the like, the racist episode. Yeah, really that, was the f- that was the first episode, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and then, like, they're, yes, they're straight in with that. And then they've got the gun control episode, which is just fucking brilliant, yeah. when they buy a gun. Yeah. That's amazing. So, like, it started so strong with that. And I really, like, I've got a really dark fucked up sense of humour yeah and uh, I just loved that with it and yeah what's a joy with it is that you know none of these characters are nice no like, there's no good person in there even the incidental characters even like the waitress isn't a good person no. and like all these like little characters just everyone is an arsehole mm. everyone's a scumbag like I think probably the closest to a good person in it is Charlie yeah Charlie's only a wronger because he's so thick. Yeah, you know, like, there's no no real malice in Charlie, but he's just so stupid. Yeah, and like so weird that he just yeah. ends up doing awful, awful things. <laughs> so like you know, like he's faking his own death, faking his own death, stalking the waitress for years. Yeah, you know, there's all these sort of things. So yeah, like I really enjoy that they don't try and make anyone likable. I think that dynamic's really fun, and mm. they really go to some really dark places and interesting places where sitcoms would normally not go mm. I've always appreciated that I was reading an interview of Robert Kelmery the other day mm. and what he said was around about the 6th or 7th season the characters start to get much more good looking blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. in a so, normal sitcom in a normal yeah. sitcom yeah so he decided to put on a shit ton of weight yeah it's so funny when he came back just really fat for a series yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. it was great but that's it, they, they fuck with the conventions of sitcoms in a lot of ways. I think like you get a lot out of It's Always Sunny if you've watched a lot of other sitcoms because you see what they're doing against the grain. Mm. And like that's exactly it. Like Rather than making the characters nicer, rather than giving them a nicer resolution, mm. rather than making them better looking and fixing their teeth and all yeah. that, they constantly try and be uglier, both physically and in their personality, like all the time. They they embrace that ugliness. Like Danny DeVito is so amazing in it. Like yeah. I, I was genuinely worried when he joined it. I was like, oh, you know, big celebrity mm. parachuted in, it's going to be terrible. But he's amazing in it. Mm. He has no shame. Like, uh, like I've seen interviews with the creators where they're just like, yeah, if we ask Danny to do anything, he just says yes. He's like seventy-five or something like yeah, that. So like, it's ridiculous, man. He looks fucking good on it, to be fair. Yeah. But like, I just love how little of a shit he gives. Like, there's episodes where he's just oiled up in a nappy, rolling around yeah. in the dirt. <laughs> 
and like you know that I, I love that level of commitment and that lack of ego mm. to do that and that's what makes it so fucking funny that you know clearly all of them will do anything for the laugh to be fair like he has he um after him doing the film Deck the Halls, he yeah, can't yeah. have any shame. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, he's already plumbed the depths. Oh, that was a fucking terrible movie, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah he's done some stinkers. Like, that's the thing, he hadn't done anything really good for a long time. Yeah. Um, but I think this is, it's been a really wonderful uh, reinvention for him and a really yeah. great move. And it's, yeah, more power to him. It's fucking incredible. Like, he is, he makes the show now. He, he really elevated it. Mm. Well, his little star quality is also little in general. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> little star quality. Yeah, yeah, and like his relationship with Charlie is so beautiful. Mm. Like their, their friendship is genuinely heartwarming. Yeah, and like you know they they live in absolute squalor. Yeah, like, with their toe knife. And they sh- and they share a bed together. Exactly, it's a bit Bert and Ernie. It's yeah. like a really scummy Bert and Ernie, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think there's a real beauty to it, and uh, I really ador- adore their friendship. I think it's really lovely. I, I love the episode where they sh- where the shit in the bed. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's <laughs> like, yeah, just trying to work out who's shot in the red. Yes. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. Um, but yeah, I think that's really lovely. Like the the interpersonal relationships are actually really mm. well crafted, and they're really they're real. Yeah, you know, they 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 really work. Like, you know, you have got the dynamic of uh, Mac basically being in love with Dennis. Yeah. Um, and that sort of weird bromance where you know Dennis is a psychopath, so doesn't yeah. feel anything for anyone. Yeah. But then you know the brother sister dynamic. You got the father, you know, father and kids dynamics with uh, with um, Frank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I think it's uh, like it's it's really really well done. It's really like settled into a really lovely pattern that they can just play with forever. And mm. like it's it's been so consistent. And that's one of the things I really love about it. It's never really dropped the ball. Yeah. Like there's never been a, like a season where it's just been a bit shit. Like you know, like one of my favourite sitcoms of all time as well as Frasier. Yeah. But like, there's a couple of like towards the end. There's some real, real bad episodes of Frasier. Mm, yeah. There's never been a bad episode. Like you know, there might be odd episodes of it's always something that don't quite hit the heights. But there's never been like one that has embarrassed me. Exactly. Yeah. But that's because even when the writing is not very good, mm. it's still better than other sit. It's still totally, better than yeah, other yeah. sitcoms on on the circuit yeah yeah totally because they're, they're, they're completely original and it's an original voice and like, they actually do some really like good satire like, mm. there's some really interesting episodes on the Me Too movement and on trans bathrooms yeah. like, in the later series they've actually like tackled those issues in really interesting ways and they actually there is a surprising level of like uh, wokeness to yeah. it like, under the surface and like that, but I, f- I find that with a lot of like dark comedy like often like dark fucked up comedy is made by really good people yeah you know, usually the people in comedy who turn out to be assholes make really lovely comedy about how nice they are. Well, yeah, like, well, there's a saying that the, if you the kid, the people that make kids movies are horrible. Yeah. But the kid, but the people who make horror movies are the loveliest people that you'll ever meet. Yeah, I can, I can believe that, and I think that's, uh, yeah, it's quite kind of true in comedy. It matches up with my experience. Like, all my, mm. all my favorite people in comedy say horrible, horrible things on stage. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they're just really lovely people. But um, yeah, I think there's definitely an element of that with it's always sunny. They seem like really good people yeah and like um, yeah Dee is such an underrated character as well she's yeah. an amazing performer she's so funny I can't remember the actress's name played Caitlin Olsen there we go yeah. she's so brilliant like her characterisation with Dee is amazing like she can like she really like physically embodies mm. what she's doing yeah. and like you can see the emotional changes in her as she does things like I, I think she's amazing performer so fucking funny like that's the thing like as a cast 
everyone is hilarious. I just like, remember, I love the scene where she's on the bus. Yeah. And she's got, and she's standing in front of the guy who's just, and she's trying to get him to move. He's just not having any, he's just not speaking. So at funny all. with her trying to like scrabble past. Yes. It's, like, it's brilliant physical comedy. <laughs> like, it really is. She's, she's a really good physical comedian. I think she might be. In terms of like yeah, the physical sort of slapsticky mm. end of it, they're probably the best in the cast. Mm. Like, she's amazing. Um, isn't she married to? Yes, is it Ron McElroy? Ron McElroy, yeah, maybe yeah. I think it's that's Ron McElroy. It's Ron McElroy that she that he's. Or is it Charlie Day? Oh no, <coughs> uh, no Charlie Day is married to the waitress. Okay, that, yeah. that, that's his real wife. Yeah, yeah. Who report? Who repulses? Who? Yeah, is repulsed by him in the show. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there are like real. It's kind of like Fleetwood Mac in it. Like, <laughs> But uh, yeah, they all sleep with each other. <laughs> yeah, completely. Um, but yeah, like they they do have those real relationships. Yeah, but um, yeah, I think it's Rob McElhenney who's with uh, Dean in real life. I think so. But I don't know. I could be wrong. Yeah, who knows? All right, man. I think that's that's it. I don't know. We've gone for almost an hour. Cool, man. It's I, been good chat. Been good talking I, to I, you. I fucking loved it. Good, um, man. So, Good. where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me uh, at Rob Mulholland on uh, Twitter or Instagram. Uh, it's M U L H O double L. People always get the amount of L's yeah. wrong. One L, then two. Uh, I'm not the Scottish sculpture artist who have the same <laughs> name. Um, so, yeah, you can find me on there. My website is robcomedy.co.uk. You can find like my mailing list and all that. I'm on YouTube, Rob Mulholland Comedy. Mm. I've got a channel up there. I'm going to be putting my new special uh, out in probably. Well, whenever I get it edited, I'm nice. shooting a special up here at Edinburgh. Good stuff, man. Um, Are you putting that on YouTube? Yeah, it's going to go straight on YouTube. You can also, like, my last show from Edinburgh is on Next Up. It's called Popular Comedian Rob Mulholland. So, mm. yeah, like, Google me, you'll fucking find me. Like, I'm out there. That's a re- that is. I'm surprised more comedians haven't start, haven't done that. You like putting their special up on YouTube. It's so the way forward, still, man. Like, it's the way forward. Instead of going through like the Netflix hoops and whatever yeah, yeah, else, you can just control it yourself. It's what Kay Kurd's done and he's done yeah. really successfully with it. And like more and more people are doing it. Andrew Sh- Andrew Schultz did yeah, it. He's, yeah, he's like the leader basically. He's you know he's a bit of a pioneer with that, yeah. Andrew Schultz. Um, but yeah, it's it's the it's the future and. Yeah, I think the future is just making things, giving them away for free, and then the people who like that will come and listen, pay to see you. Come and pay to see me. Uh, listen to my podcast, which, by the way, is called Rob Mulholland Has an Opinion. Oh, brilliant! Um, Where yeah, can they find that on? Wherever. Like, if you, if you, if if it, if you can get podcasts on it, you can find my podcast. Sweet. It's fucking everywhere. Spotify and all that sort of shit as well. Um, but yeah, like, and then people will listen to that, and then they become your fans, and like. Well, what's really nice with internet culture is fans actually support you and yeah. want to support you and people will pay for shit and then that's how we make our living and it's a really nice direct way to do it I really love it it's a genuine connection uh, no one's forced to pay anything if you're broke you can still access all yeah. the shit and like that's how I want it to be like because um, I've been broke for time Woo! so I want to make it easy for people you know like um, yeah I want you to be able to see all my shit so yeah like that'll be coming out on YouTube my new special it's called Too Big to Fail it's the show I'm doing up here and uh you know, whilst they blow me on trumpet, it's fucking funny. So, yeah, uh, nice. So where can they see you if they're up in Edinburgh? Up at Edinburgh, um, it's uh, I'm at Opium on Cowgate. It's like a metal bar. It's such a sick venue. Mm. Um, it's at 7.20pm. It's called Too Big to Fail. I'm not in the main app or brochure because they wanted me to pay £400 and I couldn't be asked. So uh, you can just find me in the Wee Blue book, which is the PBH Free Fringe thing. Okay. But it's 7.20pm at Opium. And yeah. Come check me out. All right, Rob, it's been brilliant talking to you, man. Thank you very much, fella. Mm-hmm.
Thanks very much to Rob Mulholland. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter at your boy Gibbo, um, on Instagram at GibboGram1. And always, you can come and catch me at Duffy Connors and Shannon Johan at Dropkick Murphy's Bar in Edinburgh from 6.45 every day until August 25th. All right, guys. See you later. Bye.